Hello and welcome back to The World's Last Night. This is James Thayer. Today we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 45. If you remember last uh, time we, we were reading in 44, uh, Judah was giving a speech to Joseph. He did not know it was Joseph, right? He just thought it was an Egyptian authority. Basically begging him to give him Benjamin in in place of himself. So, Benjamin was caught with the silver cup in his bag. The presumption is that he stole it. You and I both know that. No, he did not. But uh, Judah is there basically doing a 360 or uh, I guess a 180 with his personality. And instead of selling his brother into slavery, he is willing to trade himself and make him go into slavery in exchange for Benjamin to go free. Well, in 45, we're going to see what Joseph's reaction is to this speech and uh, and we're going to get a conclusion to this really great kind of story about Joseph's life. Now, I say conclusion, and then we have sort of an epilogue in chapter 46. But without further ado, verse 1, chapter 45. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, Send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were too terrified to answer him. So with all this commotion, Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion, sends all of his Egyptian servants out. He's just left alone with these brothers. And I guess the outburst, and the wailing is enough to, to terrify these brothers where they can't even speak. So, we'll continue. <laughs> then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jeez, that's pretty cool. Um, So... One thing to that you know stands out to me is this idea that uh, God sent me head head of you to preserve life. So there's a couple ways to look at this. When we talk about predestination versus free will, there is a huge discussion about whether or not free will can actually exist um, or not in in a world that God is sovereign in. So what does that mean by God being sovereign? When people say that, they basically mean his will is basically unmatched. No one can contest his will. No one can force his hand. um, But rather, since he is sovereign, that means he rules alone. So when we talk about free will, there's really two camps that you, you can discuss. You have, and this is in specific, specifically talking about salvation, not necessarily events, but you have the Arminians and you have the Calvinist. These are two different groups. And then you have, there's other ones, there's other ones, but these are probably the biggest ones. But these are two different groups that um, have a systematic theology about 
how free will interacts with God's plan for salvation. Arminians, it's a, um, a Wesleyan concept. So like the Methodist, for example, would be Arminians. Calvinist, if you ever hear of a church that is reformed, usually they adhere to a Calvinist theology on salvation. And that comes from John Calvin, who was a reformer uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Um, there are different varying degrees of people in belief here. I mean, I know even like uh, Mark Driscoll's old church, Mars Hill, he wouldn't even consider himself a five-point Calvinist. Now, I wish I would have wrote it down. You can look it up in your own time. But the five-point Calvinist, that's the different points an acronym for that is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Some of these are um, like uh, irresistible grace is the I in TULIP, meaning if God has called you, then his grace upon your life is irresistible to you. In other words, you cannot reject it even if you wanted to. I guess another way to look at it would be you're not going to want to. Um, you have perseverance of the saints. That's the P. That means that those who persevere to the end in the faith, they are the actual saints. And so the implication is there are lots of counterfeit saints. Those who fall away from the faith, well, they were never actually Christians. That's the, the, the strict five-point Calvinist belief. So the T stands for total depravity, which would mean that you apart from God, are totally depraved. In other words, mankind has zero inherent goodness in them. Uh, the you in TULIP is um, unconditional election, which means that those who God has elected to be saved, there's no conditions set upon them. Um, in other words, there's nothing they can do to earn that salvation. There's nothing good about that person that has earned them the grace of election of salvation. Um, and then you have L in TULIP, which is limited atonement, which means that Christ died and atoned for only the sins of the saints, not the entire world. Okay, so that would be like a strict five-point Calvinist and Calvinist vary in degrees from that. Um, so the Arminians on the flip side, they don't necessarily have points <laughs> that are a cool fancy acronym, but they sort of agree and reject various points that the Calvinist has. For example, um, irresistible grace is probably the biggest difference. The, the Arminian will say no. There's not irresistible grace because free will exists and as such, God may call someone to repentance, but that doesn't mean that they are going to repent. They have a will because God gave them free will, and so they have the capacity to reject God's call upon their life. And the Calvinists would say, no, um, that's not true. So there's various disagreements between a lot of different factions as far as how salvation is implemented. The one thing that we should focus on is that all of them agree that salvation was procured by what Christ did on the cross. So if you want to boil it back down to mere Christianity, there's tons of beliefs about how that salvation was applied to people, um, but they all agree that indeed it came through the, the atonement that Jesus procured on behalf of, of humanity. So... 
when we when we talk about whether or not these brothers their sin is what is what caused Joseph to go into Egypt or if it was God's will to go into Egypt you can come at that from different angles depending on your belief system now between you and me uh, I lean towards Arminianism I think that there's plenty of scripture that shows humanity has been endowed with free will and has the capacity to reject God's calling upon their life. I'll give you an example. Um, We're going to read about Jonah. Jonah's called to go preach to Nineveh to repent, which is a a horrid city. And Jonah says, nope, not going to do it. And he sails off in the opposite direction. Well, the Calvinists will come back and say, well, didn't Jonah in the end preach to that city? And the, the answer is, yeah, absolutely he did. And so you know, the story goes, he was thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish, repents, goes and preaches repentance to Nineveh. Okay, my argument would be what happened during those three days or a few days, however many, that Nineveh didn't hear repentance. Obviously, people died, um, and they did not hear repentance, and so they died in their sin. So, in my opinion, mankind, we, ha- we do have a will, and... We, we can reject the call of God on our life to great devastation. And so, uh, it would seem like that mankind and God are working in tandem. Now, I will say, in the end, I do believe God gets his way. And we've talked about this multiple times. Does he get his way through you as a son of God or through you as just a tool? But in the New Testament, we do find that Jesus uh, weeps at the fact that Israel will not repent. So here their Messiah has come in the form of Jesus, and yet they reject him. And we have um, a scripture where he basically says, Israel, I longed to gather you like a hen would gather her chicks, but you are unwilling. So Jesus is sort of readily admitting that he loves Israel as we will find out here, right, in the Old Testament. And he had longed to gather them together to proclaim and be their their Savior and their Lord. But this was God's plan from the beginning. But then how does Jesus end that? He says, you are unwilling. So there is some sort of way that humanity interacts with God, that God has endowed them with a free will. Not that they would be able to have it apart from God allowing them to have it, but I think the argument is, in my opinion, that God allows them to have it. And once again, I think it's because he wants free agent. He wants children, not robots, to worship him. And when you have children, well, they have a will of their own. And sometimes you have to let them wander off and get and get hurt before they figure out that, man, maybe what dad said or mom said was actually pretty wise and I should actually follow their wisdom. Another example is in the New Testament, we see that God says... Uh, Uh, It's it's said about God that he desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we know the heart of God is that everyone is saved. Like, that's what he wants, right? But we also know through scripture that not everyone is saved. Jesus himself says, many will call me Lord, Lord, and say, didn't we cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name? And Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who who work evil. 
in my opinion, those are people that did not persist, that did not persist in the faith. So at one point they were faithful, they loved God, they worshiped God, they did mighty miracles in God's name, but by the end of their life, they'd fallen away for whatever reason. We also know that um, Jesus gives a parable of the seed, the sower of the seed, and basically says a man went to go sow seed in his fields, and uh, he mentions four different types of ground that the seed fell on. The rocky ground was where the seed couldn't take root, and so when the sun came up, it scorched it. He says, well, then they had the, the path where the seed couldn't get into the dirt, and birds of the air came and ate it. And then you have, obviously, the good soil where the seed took root and it multiplied and, and was fruitful. And then there's one other soil in there. Oh, the one that was choked out by the thorns. The sun couldn't get to it because of thorns. And Jesus basically says, well, these are different areas of life, things in life where these people fell away from the faith. He might say the birds of the air is, is Satan who comes and takes the word and steals it. He, he says that, like, um, the thorns represent the worries of life that choke out the word that's implanted in the in the potential Christian. And so they give in to fear and the worries of life, and uh, or they give in to like the love of money, the love of other things, idolatry. And so that chokes out the word. And then the, the hard, pa- uh, I'm sorry, the rocky ground, well, the Christian might shoot up really fast, become a Christian, and um, grow and flourish, but they'd have no root because the ground is rocky. So there's no root for them to persist in the in the face of hardship. And so when that hardship comes, they fall away from the faith. So in my opinion, the Arminian worldview is probably closer to how free will and God's sovereignty interacts based on scripture. Plenty of people will argue against me. Plenty, plenty of people will use Romans 9. The strict Calvinists will use Romans 9 to argue against this point. And when we get to Romans 9, I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. But um, in the end, I think the important part is that no matter which philosophy you adhere to in regard to this, they are not um, philosophies that are going to make much of a difference in, in whether or not we are supposed to preach the gospel, for example the basics of Christianity. The Calvinists will say, well, you need to preach the gospel um, because Jesus told you to. The Arminian will say, you need to preach the gospel because if we are not trying to win people's souls to God, uh, they aren't going to come to God. If they don't hear the gospel, they're not going to be saved. The Calvinists obviously will say, well, no, they're going to be saved no matter what if they're called by God. <clears throat> so in some way or for fashion, they're going to hear the word. Okay. I could do a whole, obviously I've already kind of done it, I could do a whole section on free will versus God's sovereignty. But that is something that definitely stands out to me in this passage and something that I felt like you as a listener might have a question about. Why is he saying God, you know, God had a plan for this? Um, We've talked about it in in, uh, many times, but just to boil it down, my personal opinion is that God will use the sin of man to bring about good. So that's bottom line for me. It's not that he causes the sin or the evil, but that he is a master strategist and is always outsmarting Satan. So whatever Satan tries to use for evil, yeah, it may be evil now, but God has a plan for it to redeem it, to bring about good and kick Satan in the face. Okay. All right. So verse nine, return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your sheep, cattle, and all you have. There I will sustain you. 
for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become destitute. So this reminds me, going back to the last passage where he says that basically God planned to, he said, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. You'll see this theme come back in, uh, multiple times in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, that God has plans to preserve a remnant. He sets aside uh, a small portion of righteous people who, despite the hardship, are going to worship him. And he knows their hearts. And so he always has these plans to save a remnant of Israel, even during the Babylonian captivity, which we're going to find out later, which is where basically the entire nation is hauled off by a foreign power. Even through Revelation, we find that God has a plan to save a remnant of the Jews living today who will uh, repent and find Jesus as their Messiah that they've been hoping for forever, right? So in this regard, he has a plan to save a remnant of Israel, which is Israel and his children, um, from this famine that's going to be extremely oppressive for the next five years. So now Joseph is saying, you know, go tell my father I'm alive. First off, that's going to be embarrassing for the the brothers to explain that. You told me he was dead, right? Uh, No, sorry, Dad, we actually sold him off to slavery. Then they all have to line up and get beaten, probably. I don't know. (laughs) But um, that's going to be difficult for them to say, I'm sure. But I think everyone is happy that there is some redemption to this, that their sin did not result in the death of their brother, but actually God used it to bring him to a point where he can deliver all of them. So then Joseph threw his arms around Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder. Joseph kissed each of his brothers, and he wept, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. So they probably had a great conversation to catch up. Hey, what happened? What How's it been? Whatever. (laughs) So... Uh, Verse 16, when the news reached Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. I'm sorry. The news is Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. So Pharaoh's real happy that Joseph's family's here, which is great. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go on back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your households and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can eat from the richest of the land. You are also commanded, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your young children, your wives, and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings for the best of all land of Egypt is yours. Man, this guy's got it all. He's got it made. First, okay, going back to Canaan with... um chariots of Egypt, you have to imagine how much wealth this displays. I mean, people's militaries were counted based on the number of chariots they had during this time, and there were hardly any powers that could surpass Egypt. So these chariots, you have to imagine it's more like, uh, hey, go back to your your family, and I, I want you to use my private jets to bring them here to the land of Egypt. That's kind of the statement Pharaoh is making. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave each of the brothers changes of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. He sent his father the following, 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on the journey. So Joseph sent his brothers on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't argue on the way. That's a really great parting advice because you know these brothers are going to start. Satan will, will, even after receiving a blessing, Satan will try to find a way to corrupt it. Think about people who land 
Um, they win the lottery, and so they are immensely blessed. But then envy starts to creep in, and the family members and friends and acquaintances and that long-lost cousin you've never seen <laughs> shows up, and they start wondering why you aren't generous. Why aren't you taking care of them with this newfound wealth? And by taking care of them, they mean, well, why won't you buy me a nice car? Um, there's actually a story about uh, a man who won the lottery, and his friends convinced one of his friends convinced him and said, "Hey, um, buy me a house because you know if you ever need to stay anywhere, then obviously, like I'll have this nice house for you to come and stay at." And the idiot bought that friend that house, and once that guy burned through all of his lottery money money he actually uh went to try to cash in to, to, to have a place to crash to stay at that friend's house that he bought him and the friend said no and turned him out so basically what i'm saying is after blessing comes satan will try to come in there and pervert it and screw it all up and you can imagine these brothers heading back to egypt they've been overwhelmed with this emotion they've seen the work of God, and yet they have doubts. They probably are blaming each other. Well, you, Judah, you're the one that wanted to sell them into slavery. Um, and so they are probably going to argue on the way back about all of this. And so Joseph is warning them ahead of time, basically saying, you know, don't, don't argue on the way. Like, I know you're going to be tempted to. Don't do it. So 25, so they went up from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They said, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned for he did not believe him. But when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport them, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. Then Israel said, enough, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go see him before I die. So Joseph or sorry, Jacob has been revived and you could you could say he's had a slight spiritual transformation. It says then Israel said enough. So it says the spirit of their father Jacob was revived and the next passage says then Israel said enough. So we've had this duality of of characters for jo- for Jacob. Same man, right? But what kind of man are you going to live by? Are you going to, let's, okay, let me give an illustration. Say you were a young boy, you had a father, father was a war hero, Um, and I don't even have to make this up because I've read stories like this. Father was a war hero, a valiant great man. He always took care of your mom. You know, you remember him until age six probably, right? But he went off and he died in battle, and along the way your mom decided to remarry, but unfortunately remarried a man who uh, had an ill temper, maybe beat on your mom, and was a drunkard, washed out. And you survived that household and, and decided, I'm going to become the man that my original father was instead of this man. Or vice versa. Replace the roles. You know, a drunk father, um, terrible dad, dies early. Mom remarries a good man. Okay. That boy, though, as they grow up into a man, they're going to struggle with their identity. They're going to have to uh, figure out what kind of man they want to be based on the examples that they were given as a child. And they might oscillate back and forth between these kinds of men. Well, Israel or Jacob is having the same 
crisis in the past several chapters. He uh, has not made up his mind if he's going to be a man of faith or a man of worry. If he's going to be that same Jacob that always had a contingency plan of some sort, trying to bring about goodness of his own of his own will, or if he's going to actually submit himself to will to the will of God. Is he going to um, be Jacob the schemer, or is he going to be Israel the ruler? So, when it says Jacob was revived, in the next passage it says, "Then Israel said, Enough, my son Joseph is still alive.'" Where he actually gives into belief, he actually believes it. In my opinion, that's going to be where we we see Jacob become Israel um, before he dies, and it took his whole life. I mean, you remember the angel of the Lord wrestling with Jacob, and he puts his his uh, hip out, right? Carries that wound with him. Jacob, I think, has wrestled with God his entire life. And maybe finally he's surrendered. Perhaps that's what this is. His finally surrendering to faith. Putting his faith in God to provide for his family and his household and to bring about the promises that have been imparted to him from Isaac and then again from Abraham, as opposed to faith in his own worldly wisdom. That's the end of the chapter. I think we had a, a two really good things to talk about here, about predestination a little bit. That we're going to discuss more and more as as we read scripture, we're going to sort of add different angles and light to it. And then again, talking about how Jacob has this choice to be one of two different kinds of men. Um, we also saw the reunion of Joseph and his, his brothers, which is phenomenal. So God has worked things out for their good in the end, which reminds us back, brings us back to, uh, what is it? Romans 8, 28, I believe. God works out all things for the good of those who love him. So... We'll talk more about that later, and in verse 46, we get a little epilogue of this. So until then, uh, this is James from The World's Last Night.